grab your coat and get your hat. Leave your worry on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. Welcome to Ken's Bulls and Bears Report. This is Ken Roberts on KCKQ 1180 AM. Stay tuned. My guest today is Paul Merriman. We'll be talking about myths and realities of investing. Please remember that opinions expressed here for educational purposes, for specific investment advice, consult your own advisor. How are you today, Paul? Thanks for joining me. You know, it's great to be back, Ken. Thanks, Thanks for the invite. Oh, you're welcome. I always look forward to it. I love your website. Just a wealth of information and a lot of free uh, free material. You want to tell people how to find your website before we get started with some of these questions here? Uh, you know, you've you got to be able to spell Paul Merriman, oh, which, boy. by the way, is M-E-R-R-I-M-A-N.com. Okay. And you've got portfolios at Vanguard and articles and podcasts and videos and uh, also free books even. So uh, yeah. lots of education and no advertisements. Right. And this, the material's free and the education's the key. This our financial system's very complicated today between taxes and investing and it's education's the the way to go to teach yourself how to manage your finances. Let's speaking of that, let's talk about some myths and realities because you hear some myths out there and also some realistic things and you need to know how to separate them. Is buying stocks just one big gamble? Should you just go to Vegas and put your money down or put it in the <laughs> stock market? Well, you probably know more about that than I do, but but the uh, but a lot of people do think that putting money into stocks or the stock market in any form is in fact the same thing as gambling. But you know, obviously, gambling is the opportunity you know to to bet on red or black, and you find mm-hmm. out in a matter of seconds whether you doubled your money or you lost it all. That that's the way gambling works. And then there's another level that I would say oftentimes represents what goes on in the stock market, and that's speculation. Sure. And speculation, that's that's different. That, you're taking normally high risk. There's a chance you'll get a high return, but there's also a chance that you'll get a low return. In fact, you may lose everything in a lot of speculations. But investing, when we look at virtually every 10-year period of a diversified portfolio, in almost every case, there are a couple of exceptions, you're going to come out ahead. And that's the nature of investing. It's long term. It has a history of making reasonable rates of return. We can always argue about what reasonable is, but that is not a gamble. The gamble, I think, is putting money into uh, the bank and holding it for the long term, because then you're you're gambling that inflation doesn't eat up uh, all of that money that you might make. So maybe there are some gambles, where, depending on where you put your money. Right. And there's different types of risk. That's a good point. You can save your money in a bank savings, but if inflation takes off, you lose purchasing power. That money might be there for you, but uh, there's different types of risk to manage. And that's it's not, it's not that simple as just saving the money. You've got to have it grow, keep up with inflation. Another good myth. How's this one? You don't lose money if you don't sell a stock when it's down. I love that one. Okay. Because a lot of people, they do feel that way, that if they don't sell, they, have, they haven't lost money. Well, in, in, in fact, uh, when, when your portfolio is down in value, it is 
uh, unlike your house, which you don't know what it's worth every day, but you do know what your portfolio is worth. Right. Now, what they're saying, of course, is that unless you sell your Enron, mm -hmm. uh, you have not taken a loss. And, and, and in fact, there is some point that investors finally agree, yes, I actually have lost money, even though it's still worth 50 cents a share or whatever it might be with that, that stock that went the wrong way. Mm -hmm. But you know something that people don't consider? is when you're sitting on a bad investment, and people will do it for a decade, two decades, just waiting to break even. If you sit there on that money, instead of putting it into something that has a very high probability of success, you have what is considered an opportunity risk. You missed the opportunity to make money just waiting to break even, and so, a lot of investors, as you know, Ken, they get married to a stock, they believe in it, they just know the minute they sell it, it's taken off. That's a hard lesson to learn. But yes, when you are down, your portfolio has lost value, whether you sell it or not. Now, that's what it's worth right now, and if you happen to need that money tomorrow, uh, then you would be forced to take that loss. The question is, do you have to take it? Right. That brings up another really good one, which is if you want to make money in the market, you have to learn to sell your losers and let profits run. That now a, that, I, excuse me, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, is that a myth or a reality? You know something? For some people, I think it's considered to be a reality, and for other people, it's a total myth. As okay. In fact, I would, I'd say that you'd be hurting yourself if, if you were to sell your losers if you built your portfolio a certain way. But let me talk about the trader, the person who's bouncing in and out of the market. Those people will often say that you, you cut your losses short and let your profits run. Mm -hmm. but what, what if our portfolio for the rest of our life is simply to put a percentage in large cap growth and a percentage in large cap value and a percentage in REITs and emerging markets and mm -hmm. the, the whole list of really great long-term asset classes. Dogs part of the time, no question, but their history is one of paying a nice premium for the risk. Well, in that particular case, when one of those asset classes is down, you actually want to be taking money from something that is up and rebalancing the portfolio because these things go through periods of being in the doghouse, then they come roaring back. So you wouldn't want to sell those when they're down. You'd want to buy those. Right. Do a disciplined periodic rebalance of a well-planned portfolio, and yep. you'll that will happen. You will be buying some when they're down and cutting some profits too, taking off some of the winners when they're moving up and that's that's a good way we'll talk more about this as time goes on we're just about ready for a commercial break but today we're going to be covering basically myths and realities of investing and there's a lot of things out there that people you see in the media reading the news or hear about that aren't aren't quite accurate so we're going to go through that today and try to help you out stay tuned be right back Welcome back to Ken's Bulls and Bears Report. This is Ken Roberts on KCKQ, 1180 AM. My guest today is Paul Merriman, and we're talking about myths and realities of investing. Here's one of my favorites, and this is, you'll see a lot of in the print media. Almost nobody beats the S&P 500 over the long term. 
Well, that, that used to be what, I mean, so many people believed that. And I think what caused part of that to happen is because uh, yeah, when it came out in uh, 1976, for the next 25 years, it compounded at about uh, 17% a year. Right. And so that made investing look real easy. Uh, then for the next, what, 18 years about, it's been under 6% a year. Now, what we do know is that small cap value, and I've got probably eight articles on small cap value that I've written. They're good, yeah. Uh, thank you, Ken. And, mm -hmm. But small cap value has outperformed the S&P 500 in uh, almost uh, every period. Uh, in fact, if you go out 40 years, which is what we should be thinking when we think long-term, small cap value uh, came up number one of all the major asset classes, 93-plus percent. And the S&P 500, I think, was in the top percentage, maybe one or two 40-year periods. Okay. So it, it, it has not had the great track record, but I will say this that if you compare the S&P 500 to mutual funds that are actively managed and are in the same asset class with the S&P 500, over a 15-year period, there have been studies done on this, about 10% of those actively managed funds are able to beat the benchmark. So, boy, when you try to beat the S&P 500 with a fund that's actively managed in that same asset class, you're really betting against yourself because the odds are not in your favor. That makes sense. But selecting an asset class that has a long-term history, that's a different story. I like, that makes yeah. a lot of sense to me. Yeah, exactly. Why don't we just, um, you know, Morningstar ranks mutual funds. Why not just pick the top-ranked mutual funds, the Morningstar five-star funds, best in the business, and stick with them and rotate to five-star funds? Well, of course, the people who have a five-star rating would like to like people to believe that's what you should do okay. because as you know they advertise we have so many five-star funds right you know i've never seen a fidelity ad that says we have 20 percent of our funds are 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 one and two rated funds i mean they're they're the worst in their categories so it's it's used to, to highlight funds that have been doing well lately so talking about the s p 500 for for example, from 1995 to 1999, the S&P compounded at over 28%. Oh, it's an amazing, you couldn't help but end up being a five-star fund. And right. if you were a look-alike, uh, what they call a closet indexer of the S&P 500, you probably, if you didn't get 28.5, you probably got 26.5. You look like a genius. Mm -hmm. But then that period of time where the S&P makes less than a 6% compound rate of return, all of a sudden you look like a dog. And right. so what the studies show, if you become a five-star fund, let's look at the last three years, best performance of the last three years, in the next three years, you're more likely to perform under average under the average of your asset class than you are to outperform the average. So chasing performance based on star ratings is probably not 
the way to become an all-star investor. Okay. And that makes sense to me. I've seen that many times, you know, for people I've talked to, clients and so forth, that uh, just want to find the best money manager from the last quarter, put their money there, and then they end up being disappointed a couple quarters down the road when that one doesn't continue with that those, those kind of performance numbers. So that's uh, yeah, it's, a very it's, common mistake, it's I think. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, young people need to get started, do things right, max out that 401k, or at least get the company match. Um, here's a kind of a myth or a reality. Can young investors afford to take a lot of risk since they have a lot of time to make up for their mistakes? Well, this, this is a tug-of-war one because mm-hmm. uh, in, in some ways I would say absolutely. I would say that if you had access to a small-cap value fund, and particularly if it's an index fund, uh, through your 401k, I'd say go for it because you've got many years for that money to work and take advantage of the huge premium that small-cap has created in the past and you mm-hmm. and I both know that doesn't guarantee the future but we got a got 90 years worth of documented history that makes us at least believe it's going to be a smart thing to do but the kind of of, of mis- mistake that they I think a lot of adults will say to young people look we I want to show you how to buy an individual stock mm-hmm. I mean parents love to do that get their kids involved by buying individual stocks and, and, and then they'll tell the kid, you know, you can afford to take a lot of risk because if it doesn't work out, you got plenty of time to, to save again, if you will. Mm-hmm. I hate that advice. And this is one of the reasons I'm not a fan of, the, of teaching kids the stock market game, because it, it, breeds, it, it breeds people who are going to try to pick hot performing stocks. But right. when you don't take advantage of that of, of, of the uh, uh, that money that you lose I and mean, if you lose money because you speculate my son did that I did that mm-hmm. and I can tell you that both my son and myself would say that's not a smart thing to do but you don't have to learn that you can just get it from somebody who's been around for a long time because when you lose and my son he lost fifteen hundred dollars on a hot stock mm-hmm. That's $1,500 that would have turned into 100000 if he just put it in the S&P 500 over a long period of time. Right. Yeah. Permanent losses, are they're there forever. Yeah, that's the ultimate yeah. bad bear market. You can't recover from it. Right. Not like being in an index fund that'll, or an index that'll bounce back eventually. Let's yes. talk, talk more a little about younger people. It's so important to educate them. Get started early. Some people think they can afford to wait until they're 40 years old to start investing, and that'll give them 25 years to save. Isn't it a lot better if you start at age 25 and save for 40 years? You know something? Uh, I'd even be pushing for age 21. I just okay. recently wrote an article, Ken, about about uh, going to a parent. Now, I realize not all parents can do this, mm-hmm. but you take a loan for $5,000 a year for five years. Okay. Let's say you did that from age 21 to 25, and that that uh, you put that money. I'd love it in a Roth IRA, uh-huh. or I'd I'd love it going into a a 401k plan that the company is matching half of it. I mean, there's a whole bunch of ways that this could work out over the long term. 
that you don't, by the way, you don't ask for a gift from your parents. You want to show them you're an adult and you ask to borrow the money, Uh but because you're, you know, you're just getting started, you can't pay them back. You you, you start paying them back, let's say after they've loaned you this $5,000 a year for five years. Then you pay them off, let's say over a, a, a 20-year period. It'd be about less than $200 a month to pay them back. Right. Guess what? Five years from age 21 to 25, five years in the S&P 500 based on the past would would turn out to be about $1.4 million. Yes. Just that $25,000 Right. And so waiting around, and there's another problem with waiting around until you're 40, that it can be a killer. Now think about somebody who completely missed the 1975 to, to 1999 bull market. Okay. 17% a year in the S&P 500. Right. And they're thinking, oh, I can wait, I can wait, because because I'm going to be able to make, well, over two, 10%. It looks like it's easy. Mm-hmm. So then at 40, 40 they start investing the money and they are investing into a market that makes less than six percent a year now for pretty close to 20 years you miss you never you didn't know that period of time prior to you sitting on this stocks these stocks and not getting much you, you didn't know that that earlier period was going to be the opportunity we never know that so you let that time go by not only do you not get the compounding, but you miss the possibility that that is going to be a period of time that pays great rewards. Right. That's right. You get into well, like we've been in now since the last, you know, the S and P five hundred bottomed in March of two thousand nine. Just in this this period, has been pretty strong here, almost ten years now. And if you miss out on something like that, that's going to have a big impact. By the way, I got a number for you. I love numbers. Okay. A few days before that uh, March 9 bottom, people uh-huh. were surveyed. 19% of people believed it was a good time to get in the market. The 19, rest yeah. be- that said, stay away. Yep. Oh, yeah. Talk about the, the myths of investing. Boy, there's one in there somewhere. Yeah. People get afraid to buy near the bottom and get greedy at the top, too exuberant. Yeah. <laughs> We think linearly. We mm-hmm. think whatever direction it's going, it's going to continue. Right. That's so true. That's one of the most common mistakes that people think that the, the current trend that's in place is going to stay in place, not that it's going to revert to the mean, especially if it tends to get far away from a mean. And that's the opposite is true. Um, we're just about ready for a commercial break. Can you, you want to give out information on your website again real quick? and then we can. Oh, sure. We'll Paul at paulmerriman.com. Um, uh, portfolios there, by the way, for Vanguard, Fidelity, okay. T. Rowe Price, Schwab, whole bunch of stuff to help you be a better investor. Okay. PaulMerriman.com. Stay tuned. Be right back. We're going to take a quick commercial break and more talking about myths and realities of investing in the next segment. Welcome back to Ken's Bulls and Bears Report. My guest today is Paul Merriman talking about myths and realities of investing. Here's one of my favorites. I've seen this quite a bit seems like a lot of money but today maybe not so much if i can save a million dollars i'll have enough to retire yep uh well depends on how much you want to have to retire i suspect uh 
there are a lot of people, Social Security, maybe plus a pension uh -huh. and a million bucks, they'll be in good shape. But, you know, the fact is, when I came into the industry in 1966, all the young people I spoke with, almost to, to the last one, looked forward to someday having a million dollars. Right. And uh, and what's interesting is if we, and we've got a table on this uh, that if you took out forty thousand dollars in nineteen seventy out of a million dollars and you adjusted it for inflation, mm -hmm. that from nineteen seventy through two thousand seventeen it would take two hundred and thirty thousand dollars to replace the forty thousand. Now, okay. here's the good news. That was with uh, a, a, an inflation rate of about 4.5%. That, By the way, that was through 2000, 2010, correct, 2010. Okay. So 230 grand. If it had compounded at the historical average of 3%, you would need $130,000 uh, a year to replicate the, what you got for 40000 back in 1970. So uh -huh. I'm telling young people, it's going to take somewhere between 3 and $6 million if you think you want to replace what today is about a $40,000 a year income. And that's not living high. Right. Maybe living good, but it's not high. Mm -hmm. So a $1 million, well, it's still a $1 million. It just doesn't buy as much as it did 40 or 50 years ago. Right. That's right. And if people start withdrawing, don't understand the consequences of taking too much out at certain times, that can, uh, can end up depleting that. Yeah. And I think fast. the problem, yeah, and the problem, Ken, is that if young people set a, a, a goal thinking that having a million dollars is going to solve their problems, mm -hmm. uh, I think that they haven't gotten good guidance. But they don't want to hear anything, in most cases, that would suggest they need to sacrifice and save more money. The experts will tell you, you better be saving 15 to 20%. And there are, there are places in the world where people do save 15 to 20%, but not in this country. No, I think we're at a... about 5% now. Yeah, that sounds right to me, based on what I've seen. And that's... Yeah, 15 or 20 would make a big difference. It's, it's... Yeah, and some people will have the good fortune of having a 401k plan where the company matches a portion. That takes some of the pressure off. Yeah. But, uh, and, and how is a young person going to fight the abilities of Google and Amazon and, and, and Facebook to know your every, not every inner thought, but enough of your inner thoughts that they are really good at helping people part you your money from you True. to sell you something. And, and how do people learn to say no in that environment? True. That's a, that's a, new, a new angle on it, too. People at, with budgeting learn that that, that Internet is broadcasting right at you the things that you're interested in constantly yeah and you can go and right supposedly i i heard i've heard i don't know if this is true ken that they can they even know i live on bainbridge island up here in the state of washington just outside of seattle uh -huh. and uh the people on this island have more than the average in the united states so i've been told that the people who are quoting us prices for things i'm talking about over the internet they know 
from whence we come, and they know how to price things to us to maximize what they're going to get. Mm -hmm. We have people who come off the island, come here over a bridge. They come here, and and they do work for people, and they charge a different price here than they do just across the bridge. Right. So, uh, you know, this is all these uh, all these challenges we have in, in taking good care, being a good steward of what we have to save for the long term. Yeah, that makes sense. And people that are impulsive, they see those ads, you can go right to Amazon, just click click a button and the product's delivered in a day or two. I mean, that's uh, that can make it tough to budget. Well, I see my wife and her her when she reads, she loves to read books, but uh-huh. uh, she now reads at least twice as many books as she did before when she had to go out and buy a book. Yeah, and now you know uh-huh. it's just a push of the button, and it's right there. And I wake it, up yeah. in the middle of the night, and there she is in the middle, <laughs> the middle of one of her books. Uh huh. Life changer. It sure is. Interesting times. Here's a good one. Um, you don't need international funds in your portfolio because most U.S. companies make money by doing business in international markets. You know, there is, well, first, let's talk about what you need. Okay. Uh, I think that if you put all your money into the S&P 500, I'm talking about the equity portion of your portfolio, mm-hmm. that I think the long term you'll do just fine. Okay. What we do know, though, is if you add some small cap and some value and some international small cap and value and some emerging markets and some REITs, and you put them all together, you have this massively diversified portfolio. I write about it uh, uh, under the the heading of the ultimate buy and hold strategy. But the idea is that you combine these asset classes beyond the S&P 500 to bring down the volatility and to raise the return. And that's no magic. They are just because you're putting together things that don't go up and down together all the time. Sometimes they do. A lot of the time, they don't. So you can do better. You don't Mm -hmm. need internationals. You could just be big and small and value and growth in the U.S., but you add the internationals and the difference in currencies going up and down, right? and it reduces the volatility and gives a small additional return. If all you're going to do is put large-cap growth companies international along with your S&P 500, probably pretty much a, a waste of effort. Okay. You probably do it because the S&P 500 companies do a lot of business overseas, but not smaller companies, oftentimes not value companies. So mm-hmm. you don't have to go international. There is a premium and a reward historically for having done that. But you know something? You might be more comfortable just saving a little more money to make up for the difference. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And. And, you know, present times, talking about some of these tariff, trade wars, things like that, the small cap area has done a little better because there's, they don't do that kind of business, a lot of the small caps. Yep, that's Not, right, exactly. So there's good idea to diversify, I think. Yep. Let's talk about market timing. There's lots of market timing myths, and the biggest is that market timing is more risky than buy and hold. 
Well, uh, your listeners may not know that not only do I consider myself to be an expert on buy and hold, okay, but I also have have been aware of and studied market timing since the mid '60s. Wow. So I've been doing this a long time, and half of my own personal portfolio uses market timing, and half okay. of it uses buy and hold. All so right. I believe in them both, but market timing is not for everybody. Maybe one out of 100 investors uh, would be trying market timing and succeed. But here's what we know about market timing for sure. Let's say I'm using a market timing system that moves in and out of the S&P 500. And it tries to be in when the S&P 500 is going up, and it tries to be out when it's going down. And in order to know when to be in and when to be out, you can use a mechanical, what they call a trend-following system. It's all mathematical. Mm -hmm. A seventh grader could figure out how to do this if they wanted to. But, right. but if you're sitting in a money market account, let's say a third of the time, and when you're in the money market fund because the system has kicked you out of the market, when you're in that money market fund, you're not going up and down. You're just sitting there going nowhere, actually. Yeah. As opposed to if you stayed in the market that third of the time, you'd have all that volatility. Could be on the upside, could be on the downside. That's a whole different story. But in terms of the volatility of the investment over time, market timing is going to be less risky, less volatile. What you don't know is you don't know whether buy and hold or market timing is going to be the better investment. You, you can't mm -hmm. because we're talking about the future. Right. Don't know if the returns will be better or not. Sometimes it's worth holding on through those periods of volatility. Yes. Staying invested. Mm -hmm. Another market timing myth is that, is that market timing keeps investors from losing money in a bear market. Well, I think that this is one of those unrealistic expectations. That okay. is a myth. I, I can tell you that an all, an all equity portfolio using simple trend following systems lost money in 2008. It mm -hmm. lost 18% versus 40. Right. So, no, you're going to, there is no way to, to, to conclude that if you use market timing, it's going to keep you from losing money. You're still going to be exposed to loss. It shouldn't be so much in the bad times. But the other side of that coin is you're not likely to make as much as a buy and hold in the good times. Mm -hmm. And two-thirds of the time, the market's going up. And one-third of the time or so, it's going down. So it's it really is more for old people like me uh -huh. than it is for young investors. Yeah, they can afford to stay invested once they develop the emotions to be able to hang in through those tough periods. That's uh, pretty exactly. much better off to stay invested. But, you know, yep. as you get a little older, too, you don't have time to earn those things back, and you might want to be a little more conservative. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Paul Merriman talking about myths and realities of investing. Welcome back to Ken's Bulls and Bears Report. Talking with Paul Merriman about myths and realities of investing. Paul, is 10 years performance enough track record to identify a winning strategy? Well, I think a lot of people think that it is. Okay. Uh, and, and, and it isn't. <laughs> okay. I mean, you can look at periods of time that you would get uh, snookered if you believed 
uh, that 10 years, but that could be a good 10 years, like uh, 90 to 99 for the S&P 500, a great 10-year period, yeah. which, which was capped by that 28% compound rate of return the last five years of it. Mm -hmm. But if you then concluded, and a lot of people did, why do anything else but the S&P 500? And so, and so the next decade, it actually lost uh, almost 1% a year. Right. So, so it is, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is a challenge because people, again, we go back to that idea of thinking linearly. Uh, we would uh, uh, then conclude that the S&P 500 is a bad place to be and where might we be looking otherwise? And there'll always be something, whether it's healthcare or finance or energy, if you want to go to the sectors, you're going to find these niches that have done well in a, re in a recent period. And I really think that you need 30 to 50 years of performance to have statistically meaningful information in terms of that premium you're looking for. This is, this is what the academics brought us, Ken. They brought us uh, Dr. Fama, Dr. French. Sure. They brought us the small cap uh, premium. They brought us the value premium. And the odds, whether you're in the U.S. or you're in the international markets, the odds are very, very high that you will receive a premium. They don't know how much of a premium that you'll get. They can't predict that, but they certainly know from the past, uh, going back 90 years, that there's about a 4 to even 5% premium for small cap value over large cap growth. Mm -hmm. So no, 10 years is not enough. Okay, that's that's important. I think people look even shorter well, sometimes. You, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm just going to say that. Think what happened to people because of technology in the late 90s. Mm -hmm. People just, that I know people who were in their 50s, ready to retire almost, going to retire young. They sold all their conservative stuff and put it into the, tech stocks right. and proceeded to lose about 80% of the value of their portfolio chasing performance that they thought was legitimate. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you what their broker didn't tell them. What their broker didn't tell them is these stocks have a lot of upside potential, but they could also lose 50 to 80% because they've lost that much before. Yeah. Valuations were very high. Yeah, exactly. Um, is it unusual for novice investors to believe that mutual funds will manage the risk of bear markets? Well, that I think is an interesting myth because, okay. uh, you know, and then a, a, a novice investor that doesn't really know much thinks that the manager of that fund is going to do several things they are going to decide whether you should be in large companies or small, value or growth, maybe even U.S. or international. That's, that's what they believe that these managers could do. And then they believe they're going to pick in whatever that asset class might be, mm -hmm. the best companies. And then the last thing they believe is that if they see a bear market coming, why wouldn't you expect them to get out of the market 
and to preserve the the value of the portfolio. That does make kind of common sense, but they don't. In fact, if you read the quotes of people like Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and others, they will say that they have no way uh, to determine uh, when a bear market is coming, and they don't do anything to protect against it. Now, having mm-hmm. said that, there was one time that Warren Buffett, uh, back in the uh, late 60s, liquidated his, supposedly, the whole account, all the investments, went to cash, mm-hmm. sat on that cash until, I think, 1974, and then he got back in the market again. Okay. But that's very unusual for people whose stock and trade is picking companies. Yeah. Because think about it this way, Ken. If I tell you that I just bought a bunch of XYZ at 10 bucks a share, it's an amazing company. It's got an amazing future. Well, if the market goes down and the stock goes to seven, they're not going to want to sell that stock. After all, they believe it's got a great long-term future, and they are more likely to want to buy more, not to sell. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the manager who's looking to buy good companies that they, that they hope will become great companies, they want in a bear market to be a buyer, not a seller. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and also, uh, most investors believe their stockbrokers recommending the best investments they know. Is that true? Well, 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 I don't, I don't want to make somebody know. Okay. Not, I mean, here, here's here's the reality. Okay. I'm not saying every broker does this. That would be that would be totally totally unfair. But it's not unusual for brokers to say, "I like this company so much, I put my mother into that company." Yeah, and they think, "Oh my God, it's something you do for your mother. Then certainly it's got to be good for me." Well, an old buddy of mine who was at Merrill Lynch uh, for many years, he said his experience was there were three kinds of people that were brokers that he had worked with. Uh huh. They were about a third each of each of these three. One third of them were competent and ethical. Okay. Another third were competent and unethical. Okay. Another third were incompetent and unethical. Oh boy. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean there aren't some really good people who are both competent and ethical, but it's hard for people to to evaluate that because so mm-hmm. much of the evaluation is, you know, how's your handshake? Is it a good firm handshake? Do you look me in the eye? Yeah. Do you belong to the right clubs? Are you optimistic? It turns out mm-hmm. that being optimistic is a really big deal to being successful in the securities business. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. there's a lot of money to be made being unethical, and there's a lot of money to be lost being incompetent. Right. So so I I really think it is smart for an investor working with somebody who thinks they know how to do better than the market. They're going to pick stocks and do better, or they're going to pick an active manager, and they're going to do better. They really need to somehow figure out how do you how do you determine if these people their 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 work is as good as their as their sales pitch? And mm-hmm. we all know there's a difference between the courtship, the honeymoon, and reality. Yeah. And it's when you're in that courtship, every I mean, 
there's nothing more fun in life than a courtship. Mm-hmm. And and uh, well, that maybe it's an overstatement, but the but you know it's it's a time that you're feeling good and somebody's telling you about something that's going to make money. Ooh, God, I love that because I could retire earlier if I could just do that. Mm-hmm. And so it's got to be careful. Make sure you got competent and ethical people who are telling you what to do with your life savings. Yeah, that that definitely makes sense. And there's been some changes and discussion about the retirement rules where uh, the fee-based advisors are held to a fiduciary standard and commission to a suitability standard. And there is a difference and people should be aware of that. Yeah. Um, well, it's a big deal. And as you probably know, in the UK, and I think it's Australia or New Zealand, mm-hmm. it's against the law to sell somebody a, a, a retirement security and include a commission. Okay. That might be a good law. That's uh, Yes. You know, speaking of that, um, a lot of investors think advisors are just a waste of money. They believe there's nothing they can do to help an investor make more money on their investments. Believe that brokers and other advisors are just a bunch of crooks. How do you feel about well, that? Well, I think, I mean, I just saw some sort of a survey as to where people put brokers and investment advisors weren't, <laughs> uh, weren't much higher than the brokers. Uh-huh. They're about as low as you can go. Okay. <laughs> I think they're about as low as uh, as politicians. Uh-huh. And, uh, and of course, here's, here's the reason that so much dastardly things happen to people is because it's one thing to believe that all politicians are a bunch of crooks. But I know, I, I, I know my local representative who, who represents us when he goes back to... Uh, to, to, to DC and so I don't see him as a crook at all okay and and, and so th- these friendships that uh, that um, people are able to develop uh, to get that will get investors to trust uh, the person the broker or the uh, the advisor now in many cases truly their advice is a waste of money uh-huh. and I can almost look at a portfolio and uh, know uh, whether that advisor is 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 worried about his paycheck or the client's, mm-hmm. and that's not. And I'm sure you could do the same thing. You can you know when people are are, are representing or recommending uh, investments that just are not in the best interest yeah. uh, of the investor, right? Uh, but. But there are legitimate ways to do it. And the fact is the do-it-yourself investor ends up screwing themselves oftentimes as bad as the, as the people who should understand <laughs> to do better. Mm-hmm. But emotions, right. emotions are such an important aspect to the decision-making process around these, 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 these decisions. So, Yeah, that's absolutely true that you... you you just can help to have someone there to keep you in the market or stay calm, keep focused on your long-term goals. Thanks, Paul.